There's a need for the department to change how it uses energy for operational and tactical reasons. But also, no matter how much oil we use or where we buy it from, that's inherently a security problem. It puts money in the hands of some countries that are problems for us. So any dependence on oil is going to feed into that larger geostrategic challenge. That is the Honorable Sharon Burke speaking in our film The Burden as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy. And she joins us today to talk about what the energy burden looks like now since she's left the Department of Defense and how to speed up the energy transition for the military and the country as a whole. I'm Roger Sorkin and welcome to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project, which makes films designed to influence public policy, inspire behavioral change, accelerate the energy transition, and strengthen civilizational security. While serving at the Pentagon from 2010 to 2014, Assistant Secretary Burke helped lead the military's ongoing efforts to reduce its dependence on petroleum. She is now the founder and president of Ecospherics, a company focused on how a changing natural environment is shaping human security and how societies in turn are shaping the environment. Welcome, Sharon Burke. Roger, it's great to speak to you. And, and you've been such an interesting leader on these issues and on how to think about them and talk about them more to the point for a long time. So it's a real treat to have this conversation with you. Thank you. And we're very glad to have you. So since you served at the Department of Defense, climate change has increasingly become a major consideration for military doctrine and strategy. And I believe it was first described in 2010 as an instability accelerant or a threat multiplier, which in addition to being true, have proven to be effective ways of framing the issue of climate change. Can you explain a bit more about what is meant by these terms, instability accelerant and threat multiplier in terms of the climate crisis? Well, in 2010, Congress had directed the Pentagon to include climate change in, in its quadrennial defense review. And so the department did, and they did a, a pretty thorough job of, of understanding you know, what the thinking was in the policy community on climate security. Well, there's certainly a number of ways it works that are of, of concern to military organizations and then there's a bigger concern even for civilian organizations. How it works as an instability accelerant is, first of all, because it changes the operating environment. So your bases all of a sudden are threatened by hurricanes and storm surge, meaning that the places that you operate from, that you depend on to stage your military operations, to have your information operations, they may be at risk. So, and when you go out and your ship's in the water or aircraft in the air, whatever it is, or uh, vehicles on the land, climate change is changing the operating conditions. So that's one way in which it's a threat multiplier and that your ability to actually respond and operate may be compromised or at least changed. That's one problem. A, a different kind of problem is the way that climate change interacts with other elements of state stability. So poverty, governance, uh, just your entire economy, that uh, your agriculture, all of the things that make a country functional, climate change is gonna have an effect on those things. 
And, and then, you know, there's the bigger questions of the way in which an, it's an instability accelerant is even at a geopolitical level. So you look, for example, at the Arctic and the fact that the Arctic is becoming fully navigable for the first time in human history, uh, all of a sudden the relationships up there and the territorial concerns, which have never been an issue because it's completely impassable, all of a sudden those things are coming to life and, and it's become a geopolitical flashpoint uh, between the United States and Russia. So that's, the, and there are other places where there are those kinds of geopolitical flashpoints where it gets really interesting to me too is in strategic competition. So there's no question that climate change is gonna have a serious effect on China, for example, just like it will on the United States. How might it shape China's choices, strategic choices, especially if their agricultural productivity changes, if the, Himal if the glaciers melt faster than expected, they're already melting pretty fast and that changes water availability. It also changes their relationships with their neighboring countries. You know, how is it gonna shape China's choices going forward about who are their partners and allies and what's important to them? And you know, those are the things that we should understand better, but all of that has a potential to be instability accelerants. Even within the United States, if you look at the differences in the way that climate change is going to affect the American population, you know, we're in a, I'm, I'm talking to you today from California where we're in, I think the 20th year of drought. And, and then of course the, the evil twin of drought sometimes is flood because when you've, you know, scrubbed a landscape down to nothing and then there's a heavy rain, you get floods. So, you know, people are moving from these areas already. Sometimes people don't go home after a catastrophic event like that. So we're already seeing, even within the United States, some potential for, for a little unrest and civil unrest, and we're already in a state of political turbulence. So you add to that, that people's livelihoods are being compromised and they're moving. And even here, we can't be sure that climate change doesn't become an instability accelerant. So before you began your tenure as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy, you worked at the Center for a New American Security, writing and researching not just national security, but natural security, which is not a phrase we hear much of, but probably should. Can you explain how natural security is a better term for helping us think beyond national security to civilizational security? You know, back in about the 2007, 2008 timeframe, I came up with that term because what I saw was we have these converging environmental trends in biodiversity loss and species extinction in climate change. Those are sort of on the consequence side of, of the global economy, but then also on the input side, critical minerals, energy and water land, that all of those things, that there's this convergence of trends that of sufficiency, do we have enough resources to power a global economy that, that we have right now and that we want in the future so that more people live well? And then also on the consequence side, all this pollution. And I should add, in the years since, I also think chemical pollution, plastics, all of that is another convergent trend. Those things are piling up in a way that they are undermining human security, but also hard security. And the distinction being um, how prosperous are you? How safe are you in your society? And then 
Are you prone to unrest, civil unrest, conflict, and forced migration? And I think all of this degradation of the natural environment is destabilizing human societies and it's getting worse. We're not on a very good trajectory at this time. It's both those convergent trends of environmental degradation, how they interact with human societies to create insecurity or to spur insecurity. And then the third piece of this is how do we govern? I mean, how do we deal with this world that we're in? Um, and, and how do we get security, both environmental security and human security, when this is the situation that we're in? And the problem is, as a, a problem, as a challenge of governance, it's really not how we're set up. We're set up to manage one thing at a time. But you can't just manage climate change and not consider the effects on water. And you can't just manage energy without considering the effects on biosecurity or water. These things are all intertwined. And so we have to look at them as an interdependent, intricate set of challenges that cause each other, that affect each other, and that have to be part of an integral solution. And that's just really hard because it's not, I think it's hard human nature wise, but it's also hard in terms of it's not how we're set up to govern. So it's been a good 15 years or so now since these conversations about reducing petroleum dependence at DOD have really been implemented through policy. And so can we assume that the department has really been able to reduce their petroleum consumption? And if so, then to what degree? No, they have not. It's been pretty steady. Have they started to change their capacity, their, their approach to how they power operations? Yes, there's a long way to go. They're still using aircraft that consume actually more than the aircraft they were using 10 years ago on average. They're still using ships and vehicles that consume equal or more to what they were consuming before. So it's a mixed bag. I think the biggest bottom line on that is that some of the character of war is changing. So the way we fight with unmanned systems and robotics artificial intelligence, cyber means, all of that, the energy footprint for those kinds of weapons and defenses is radically different from tanks and destroyers and combat aircraft. So it's definitely a mixed picture, but the, the top line of fuel consumption has not changed. I think that Russia's war in Ukraine has certainly gotten people's attention when it comes to the role of energy in military operations, because there have been a lot of energy stories in that war, you know, Russia having trouble resupplying its heavy vehicles, Russia attacking nuclear power plants, um, attacks on the electrical system. I mean, this has been uh, lessons learned for operational energy in a way that I think will have a profound effect. On, well, it's been a lesson learned on all kinds of things, but including how energy moves around a modern battlefield. You're listening to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project. You can watch all of our films for free on our website, amresproject.org. That's A-M-R-E-S project.org, including The Burden, which features today's guest, the Honorable Sharon Burke, who served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy from 2010 to 2014. Sharon Burke has also been a leader at the Center for a New American Security and is now the founder and president of Ecospherics, 
a company focused on the nexus between human security and the natural environment. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and please do leave us a review to help maximize our exposure. So Sharon Burke, there is no shortage of doom and gloom when it comes to climate storytelling. And there are many filmmakers and journalists who often lead with the doom, presumably to get our attention. And we, at least at the American Resilience Project, don't believe that a doom-heavy approach is effective in getting people to take cooperative action. And of course, the doom is real. We can't deny it. But what balance do you try to strike with being realistic about our chances to maintain a thriving civilization in the face of the climate crisis? And how do you stay strong in order to keep doing the important work that needs to be done? I think it's wise to combine a little bit of doom and gloom with a lot of pragmatism. And I think, unfortunately, the doom and gloom is, is that's reality at this point. It's where we are. So we have to be realistic. And I think if you, if you aren't realistic in that score with people that they'll talk themselves out of, that they need to do anything. And, you know, as far as pragmatism and, and, and I'll get to how do I personally <laughs> handle it every day. Um, as far as pragmatism goes, what I, what I would like, what I plan to work on in the coming year is, is this question of what can you do? And, you know, I think people in the space will often jump on that and say individuals can't make a difference. But I would invert that and say it, we can't make a difference without individuals. So what can individuals at a personal level do to make a difference on this convergent crisis? And then what do we need in the aggregate at a societal level, at a governance level? And what do people need to demand or ask for from their governments at that aggregate level? And I think we need to identify really clearly now what those steps look like because there is no way to get off the really devastating trajectory we're on without changes, without changes in behavior um, and not just changes in technology, although we need that too. So there's got to be a lot of innovation in here as well. And how do I attack this work without, without losing hope or losing confidence? Is, you know, what's the alternative? It's a beautiful world. I have children that I love dearly and want the best for. Maybe it's too late, but as long as we're here, we need to do everything we can to make it better. So I don't see the point in just dancing around futility. Um, if futility turns out to be our fate, so be it. But every day until then, we have a chance to make things better. And so we just have to wake up and try that every day. I want to turn to foreign policy for a moment. And I wonder if you think we could be doing a better job to engage China on joint climate efforts and that the climate crisis and this concept of civilizational security could be more of a driver for our bilateral relations. I don't think that we can do all the things we need to do for civilizational stability if the United States isn't leading the charge. I just don't believe that authoritarian governments will ever really do what needs to be done. You know, they, that doesn't mean that China won't buy a whole lot of solar panels or even make some really important innovations in, say, um, uh, electricity transmission um, and distribution. That they can definitely make some really important advances. 
but I don't believe that they will ever do enough in this regard, nor do they have the innovation culture that will be sufficient. So we do need democratic republics like the United States and the Europeans, Japan, South Korea to really lead the way. And so the fact that the United States is going through so much domestic political and cultural um, civic, sorry, civic turbulence is really, really worrisome for the future. I think it's fair to say that our civic health is not doing so well in general as a country. There's a lot of rancor in our politics. That's pretty clear. And it's hard to even have conversations with accepted sets of facts around climate. How hopeful are you that we can somehow start addressing the climate crisis in ways that are less politicized? I think one thing that still makes me a little hopeful is that no matter what people's political views are, and no matter how much friction and even violence there is over politics, people still care about their communities and they still want things to be better. And sometimes that may be a question of just using different language because, you know, just corruption of the language so that climate change, for example, for swaths of the country, they think it's a political term that's, that's you know, woke or whatever. And it's terrible that we've come to that. But if you use the term resilience or, you know, flood resilience or long-term flood resilience, no one's going to fight you on that. You know, people want their communities to be healthy and safe. So I think that even as we really wrestle with this terrible moment in American history, um, we can still do a lot at the local level to build resilience and to help people um, get their communities headed in the right direction. One plus is that our innovation culture is so much stronger. And, and I think that the happy chaos of a democratic republic is one of the reasons for that. But at the same time, our political gridlock right now is slowing down the things we need to do. And you can see the writing on the wall that that's not going to get better. Because again, these issues have become part of the political stasis. And that's also because there's a lot of money on both sides, you know, especially on the fossil fuel side, trying to keep the status quo ante. So I, you know, I don't know how we're going to have to work through that. And I think it's increasingly obvious to people that this is really happening. You know, I think for a long time, if you really didn't want to change the lifestyle you have, you could convince yourself that this wasn't really happening. I mean, the Earth's system, the Earth, it's such a big, complex system that I understand why people look at around them and say, you know, our ability to change this system, I just don't believe it. So I understand for a long time people could talk themselves out of this, but it's pretty hard to talk yourself out of this now. So my hope is that it's, how do you talk yourself out of, you know, record heat everywhere in the country, not to mention the rest of the world? How do you talk yourself out of, you know, record storms over and over and over again and record floods. I don't think you can. So my hope is that that political gridlock that's been happening for so long becomes increasingly untenable fast enough for us to save our country. So what's your approach to talking about the climate crisis and, and persuading a skeptical audience that it's an urgent issue that we need to deal with? I think one of the things you really have to remind people 
is how is the world around them, their immediate world changing in ways that worries them? Because I think at this point, almost everybody in this country is seeing the effects of climate change, if not biodiversity loss. I mean, certainly if you ask people, do you remember 10 years ago how many birds you would hear in the early morning and how many do you hear now? I mean, the recent numbers are something like 3 billion birds are gone from North America. If you start with people with what they see in their immediate neighborhood in their in their own home, their own yard, their own community, I think that is one way to make this much more, much more tangible for people. And I mean, I've always thought that climate adaptation is a first step for most people. Like this is about your neighborhood and how we make it safer and more resilient to what's happening. Of course, that's never gonna be enough at the end of the day if we don't cut emissions, but I think you have to start with what do you see? So on some level, I think that we will have to adapt to increasingly extreme conditions and we'll just have to take that as it comes. I, I hate that I think that because that's not the world I want my children to inherit, but um, I'm afraid that's where it's going to go. So that's a different kind of innovation and adaptation problem is that how does humanity survive a very different earth? But in the meantime, you know, as you said, I'm not sure that that narrative inspires most people um, to do anything that they would need to do to either prevent that from happening or to be ready for it. So in the meantime, I, I do think that you can genuinely talk to people about the changes around them and what they can do to, to live better in that world and to prevent it from getting worse. So like it or not, we have something called the military industrial complex with just about 20% of every tax dollar going to the defense sector. And in the burden, former four-star general Tony Zinni alluded to it in, in very practical terms, suggesting that the government has the power to influence industry's ability to accelerate the energy transition as long as government can issue the contracts that we want industry to follow to accelerate the energy transition with a focus on energy efficiency, renewable energy, as requirements that are then spelled out in those contracts. As General Zinni said in the film, if they want the contract, that's where they're gonna to need to go. Uh, they want the money for their products and services. It's up to the government to set forth the right priorities in those contracts. So what's your take on the contracting process as a way to move industry in the direction that we would like them to go as a country? You know, far be it from me to, to do anything but agree with General Zinni. <laughs> so, but it's true. Uh, back when we had the Operational Energy Office, um, one of the things that we were directed by law to do was to get into the acquisition process at the Department of Defense, you know, better energy consumption. So better energy efficiency, different kinds of energy. And, you know, we made a really good start at that 10 years ago when I was there. And I know that that there's a really talented group of people that have stayed throughout that have continued to chip away at that. Um, but it's only now with a secretary of defense and a deputy secretary of defense and a president who, who have said this is a priority that things are starting to move faster. So there's some really ambitious policy goals being set in the Department of Defense right now um, that are being pushed by leadership. So it really matters that you have that kind of top-down leadership support 
for these goals. So for example, the Department of Defense has a goal to reach carbon-free electricity for military installations by 2030. That has a potential to really catalyze some change because they're a major consumer. That's a $4 billion a year electricity bill across the Department of Defense. So that, that has the potential to really catalyze some change. So when we interviewed you for the film, we were still in Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of the talk around the energy burden had to do with moving fuel to uh, and across the battlefields in those regions of the world, how we incurred many casualties and injuries as a result of those uh, attacks on fuel convoys. So what has been done and what still needs to be done to make sure that we don't have these same energy problems as a military that we did in those conflicts if we encounter future conflicts? I mean, I think the big challenge here is that human beings have to phase fossil fuel use out quickly. And the military has a role to play in that. So the burden now is how to be a different military and how do you still fight a war? And again, it comes, it's a really interesting question to look at what's happening right now in Ukraine. Because we can say, oh, the wars of the future are gonna be fought differently. So how do you shoulder the burden of getting rid of fossil fuels and saving the future, but also being prepared to fight a war where you may not get to choose how your adversary fights you? So we could go someplace like Ukraine and say, yeah, we're not gonna fight that kind of war anymore. So we don't want fossil fuels. We're not gonna need fossil fuels on the battlefield, but then the Russians come at you with heavy tanks and mow down your cities. You know, the, as they say in the military, the enemy gets a vote. So the real burden is how do we completely change the way we use energy on a battlefield, but still be able to fight an adversary who may fight any way they can. How do we make a different energy footprint a comparative advantage in warfare? Now, societally, we don't have a choice, in, in my view. If we want to survive as a modern society, we have to change. But on a battlefield, you know, that is the burden, is how do you do everything you need to do to save the future but still be able to fight a war? So last question for you, Sharon Burke, what would you say to any young people going into public service or military service? What should they be thinking about as public servants to help us accelerate the energy transition and become more resilient against the climate crisis? Well, ultimately climate change is definitely a matter of war and peace, and it's going to affect our stability, broadly speaking and specifically in specific places. But it's always, we, I think it's really important to remember this is always about war and peace. And every war is ultimately about peace and rebuilding your civil order. So the role of civilian agencies and civil society is the most important role. What we really need is to build resilience in our civilian agencies and our civil society to build security and to build peace, not just to be ready to fight wars that might get worse because of you know climate as an accelerant. So at the end of the day, this climate security, climate change, it's not really a military issue. It's a civilian issue. And the only way we get climate security is if civil society and civilian agencies make it happen. Well, Sharon Burke, thank you so much for joining us today. 
We really appreciate your time and your service to the country and to society and for all your good work. Roger, thank you. I'm just delighted to be on your podcast and I really appreciate all the work that you've done to help people understand the story because we can't get good work done without good storytellers. You've been listening to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project. My guest has been the Honorable Sharon Burke, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy and President and Founder of Ecospherics. Be sure to visit us online at amresproject.org, that's A-M-R-E-S project.org, where you can sign up for our mailing list, you can watch all of our films for free, and learn more about getting involved in a number of different issues, from the energy transition to coastal resilience to food security. This program is available on all major podcast platforms, and please do leave us a review. Today's show is produced by American Resilience Project with editing help from Joseph Skinner and music by the great John Cabon. For all of us at American Resilience Project, thank you for listening and supporting us because civilization deserves a fighting chance. Thank you.